Friday, uh, Good Friday, the year 2021. I would encourage you to hit that share button if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook and share this with your friends, share this with other people. We're going to be talking about the ever-important subject of the death of Jesus today. This is part five, actually, of a series that we're doing called What's So Big About Easter? Uh, just a few announcements before we get into the content today. I pray for our missionaries on Good Friday. I'll just mention them very, very quickly. We do this every Sunday, uh, Don and Marie-José Mann. Michelle and Louise Charbonneau in uh, Haiti, and the Manns are really all over the place. And E.J. Toupe, who is in urban uh, Toronto today. And uh, so pray for these folks, and uh, they appreciate that so much. They are our hands extended as we endeavor to reach the one who is far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. Speaking of which, if you want to join our discipleship group, we'll try and put those slides on the screen. You can do so through Facebook. You might be watching through Facebook right now, and just go to the More tab, and uh, there's a way for you to join that group. This is a group that I push and challenge, give them things to do, give them things to reflect on. Um, how do you learn your spiritual gifts and put them into action? How do you learn to pray for other people besides yourself? How do you learn to share the gospel? How do you learn to read the Bible and apply it to your lives? You don't take those kinds of next steps. Uh, this is a great a group for you. There's a private Facebook group. And uh, when we'll be able to meet in person, we'll be able to do more stuff face-to-face. -face. But um, that's a great group for you to join. And uh, I'd remind you, thank you, and thank you for your giving and uh, generosity. Most of you are doing that online, and uh, we thank you for it. It keeps us running, even this stream that we're doing. All the little pieces and parts. There's wires all over the place and boxes and cables and all kinds of things. It all, it all has a cost attached to it, as does everything in life. So thank you for being faithful there. And I want to remind you that on Easter Sunday, we will be at Cineplex once again over in, uh, in Quartier d'Istrante at 10.15. We were able to get another 15 minutes today and start at 10.30, but we're going to start at 10.15 over at the theater. You'd be surprised what 15 minutes does with all the technology and all of the setup and sound and all of that. Uh, you do have to register to attend in person. We're going to have a special little gift for kids 12 and under. The band is going to be there live, and we're going to conclude our message series on what's so big about Easter. We've got about 55 people coming so far, so that's good, and we still have some room. The, the room seat's 200, uh, so we want to keep the two-meter distance, masks, hand-washing, and all of those procedures in place to keep everybody safe. So we can still handle a few more people. You have to register online at our website, citypointchurch.ca. Very, very easy to do. Take you about 30 seconds, okay? Um, so there is that as well. Now, we'll get into today talking about the death of Jesus. We started this series with the intention. It's a bit like a Lent series. Lent is a kind of a period of uh, uh, 40 days before actually tomorrow. I think Lent ends in uh, certain Christian traditions tomorrow. And um, it's a very good tradition because it gets people thinking about Easter, reflecting, meditating on things. A lot of people fast 
uh, during the Lent season. They may fast different things in their lives, different habits, and, and all of that. So it's a, it's a really good idea. And we wanted to sort of slow down life and talk about why Easter is such a big deal. But you can't talk about Easter being a big deal unless you understand a lot of things about Jesus, which you get from the Gospels. So we talked about uh, Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, which Lent is also has a big, big uh, focus on Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. We talked about his miracles Last week, we talked about Palm Sunday. Today, we're going to do the death of Jesus, and on Sunday, of course, is resurrection. So I want to talk to you about Jesus' death and us. Uh, what does it mean for us? Uh, and just sort of slow things down a little bit, because this day will go by very, very fast. These hours will go by very fast. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of churches uh, that are that are observing Good Friday today in various different ways. We're going to do communion at the end of the service today. So if you have emblems in the house, bread, juice, whatever you can find, uh, you can get those ready. And I think we're going to have a meaningful time of communion. I would also uh, challenge you to continue watching the Chosen uh, streamed series. If you have not watched it already, I would challenge you to watch it. It will... It will uh, bring you into the understanding, the kind of a uh, the the picture of Easter, the picture of who Jesus is. It is just so so well done, and they're going to release the first episode of season two um, Sunday night at eight p.m. They're going to stream it, so I would really really invite you to watch this and to even send it, share it to people who aren't Christian at all. They'll be surprised. Oh, that's who the Bible teaches Jesus is? Oh, that's who Mary Magdalene could have been? Oh, isn't that interesting? Never saw it that way. And why is it so engaging? And you'll find people will be very engaged by this. And I'd also uh, remind you tonight at 7, I think it is. I didn't put this in the slides, but if you like live uh, stage, live theater productions with color and lights and music and all of those things, uh, there's a very unique presentation called Jesus coming out of Branson, Missouri tonight. Uh, big, big theater that they do, Sight and Sound it's called, and they're doing this whole production of Jesus. It's gorgeous, very, very well done. Uh, they played recordings of it last year for free uh, on a stream, but tonight's is live. So if you want to watch it live, it'll be quite fun. Uh, Sight-sound.tv. It's pay-per-view streamed live from uh, Branson tonight at 7 p.m. Okay, so want to talk to you about the death of Jesus today on Good Friday and us. Um, pause for a moment. When we talk about the the death of Jesus, it's very interesting that if you get into a conversation with somebody about Jesus's death. Very few people today are going to deny that. Very few. Uh, I think there's still a a uh, sort of view, a theology within Islam uh, that suggests that it wasn't really Jesus who was crucified on the cross or perhaps that he swooned. But the truth be told that no serious historian, no serious scholar is going to deny that Jesus of Nazareth died by execution on a Roman cross. And partially the reason for this is because we all relate to death, all of us. And we all, we all either know it's coming or we try and push it away. 
But we've all, or most of us, have been to somebody's funeral, and we know that death has a 100% success rate. It never, ever misses. Never. And it didn't miss Jesus either. And so when we think about uh, the life of Christ, we may try to find ways to wiggle around his miracles and all of these things. But when we get to the death of Christ, very few of us will deny this. But the death of Christ is a kind of a paradox, isn't it? Uh, for some people, it is an irritant. It is, um, to use the old title of the Al Gore uh, documentary from years ago about um, uh, climate change and global warming and so on. It is a bit of an inconvenient truth uh, for some of us. It's an irritant because when we when we think about the death of Jesus and we think about what he suffered and we look at it and we say, well, why? Why would such a apparently good man be so brutally uh, executed? And it irritates us to some degree, uh, but it also is an irritant especially if you, you know, are a, a, an atheist, let's say, because we ruefully have to acknowledge that this thing took place. And uh, it can become a little bit of an odd, inconvenient sort of truth. Is there any significance to it, to our lives, or is it just a thing that's in, the, in antiquity and so on? So it'd be a bit irritating at times. But also for others, and especially for people of faith, it is a tremendous source of forgiveness and hope and promise. Say, why? How can you call Friday good anyway? You've got this brutal death of this great man. Why would it be a source of hope for some, a source of forgiveness for some, but a bit of a kind of inescapable, inconvenient truth for others? So it has a lot of paradoxical, paradoxical stuff in it. Uh, if you have not seen uh, the Mel Gibson uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ, and you can stomach uh, the gore in that movie, that will give you a taste of what I'm talking about in terms of this paradox of the death of Jesus. It's a very, very disturbing picture in that, in that, uh, that piece. And uh, you have all sorts of emotions watching it. Uh, no wonder it became the number one R-rated movie of all time, still holding, uh, way back from 2004, I think it was. Uh, so you want to watch something on Good Friday, that'll really give you a taste of what the crucifixion would have been like. Uh, but it, there is this paradox to it. Um, so when we think about the death of Jesus, and we think about... What is its relationship with us uh, 2,000 years later? First thing that you have to grapple with, and this is why I say it can be an inconvenient, inescapable truth for some, is that this thing is established with great, great certainty. So the truth be told, when you talk about everything in the Bible, uh, let's just focus on the New Testament. And you focus on the New Testament in particular and wonder if any of it is true. Y y the death of Jesus has to be uh, the most established piece in terms of history of anything in the New Testament. 
And it becomes a problem if you're going to deny the resurrection and accept the death of Jesus, but it's very hard to not accept it. Um, I am very, very concerned uh, over the last year and change about what is happening to people's faith. Uh, churches have not been able to meet, you know, face-to-face, as it were. And while we can do so online, it, it, you have to be so intentional and um, uh, so disciplined to keep tuning in and keep engaging with your church and keep trying to grow. And, you know, I think I've done a thousand videos in the last year, you know, just video after video after video. I can hardly keep track of it and Zoom call after Zoom call and text after text and, you know, message after message. And But the truth is that I think that many of us were slipping and our faith is kind of getting, uh, uh, getting to be more distant uh, less passionate, less um, engaged, and so on. I'm especially concerned for young people and what this is doing to young people, and especially young people who are trying to be followers of Jesus. Uh, it, it is very, very tough to do that and not be around people your own in your own kind of age and you, who are thinking the same things that you're thinking and trying to encourage one another and challenge one another. It's very, very difficult. So I want to explain to you, especially those of you in your faith, is fading kind of, you know, and it's, it's getting tiring now. We're into 13, 14, 15 months, whatever it is, uh, with this pandemic. And, you know, your Christianity is just kind of ho-hum. I want to establish for you and help you put your thinking caps on today. Pretend, young people especially, that you're in one of your, one of your boring Zoom classes, uh, and, and, but you've got to focus on this one, because I'm going to give you a Zoom class right now that's going to blow your mind if you're a young person and your faith is dry, or you're thinking, uh, and you're an adult thinking person, let's say, and you know, sometimes saying young person's a young person and adults an adult is offensive. You're a person who's thinking, okay? I want you to, to, to ride along with me for a few moments. When we talk about the death of Jesus, and Good Friday is, my, is probably my favorite day of the year, I think for this reason. The day when Jesus died is probably my favorite day of the year. I want to give you a couple of things from the Scripture You don't even have to go outside of the scripture to establish the certainty of the death of Christ. You can do so with very little outside help. Say that's impossible. The Bible's written by biased people. Hold on to your your hats and just ride along with me for a few moments here. Uh, I'm going to start with John chapter 19. I'll put a few passages on the screen for you. Do a little bit of flipping. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. This is at the end of the line. Uh, when Jesus finally faces the cross. Now, you have to understand, as you walk through the Gospels and you see what happened to Jesus even before he's executed on the cross, you've got a lot of things going on between Thursday night into Friday morning. You've got half a dozen trials between the, the, the whole Hebrew side of things and the Roman side of things. This man is passed off from person to person to person in the middle of the night. He's arrested. I mean, he's probably no sleep. We're told uh, that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and around that time that his sweat was like drops of blood. It's an interesting uh, observation that could be a condition that we know of that it can happen. It's very, very rare, but it happens under extremely, extremely high stress. You've got this violent arrest that happens. You've got a flogging uh, that happens to Jesus through this whole kind of, you know, day and day or so procedure that happens into the night and into the morning. You've got a flogging that, wow, the Romans, uh, when they flogged somebody, it, it, it was something else. Uh, you've got uh, this drive for his crucifixion. You've got Jesus carrying uh, this this crossbar over his back, uh, almost like a like a squatter would carry a carry an Olympic bar who's trying to squat, except he's got to go 600 meters with this thing, and he can't even he can't even lift it at that point. Somebody else has to carry it. You've got the sort of standard known things that happen to a crucified victim. We have we found a crucified victim in archaeology. We've got a nail through his ankles. I mean, there's there's just a lot of things that would happen and that did happen to Jesus before he faces this moment on the cross. So I'm going to just focus on that for a few moments. Now, it was the day of preparation, verse 31, John chapter 19. The next day was to be a special Sabbath, and because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses before, or, or sorry, during the Sabbath, that would be blasphemous to them. They asked Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator of Judea, by the way, whose little slab we found, he was a real guy, Pontius Pilate, we can find his name in the rocks. Uh, they asked Pilate to have his legs broken, uh, to have the legs of the victims broken. We know that there was three on there, uh, on those crosses, Jesus and two other uh, criminals. And this was a practice that we know of from the history books. In fact, the legs of the crucified victim that we have found uh, in the 1960s outside or very close to the Jerusalem environs, his legs appeared to be broken. And what they would do is they would ensure and hasten the death of the victim by hitting their legs with this kind of baseball bat-like thing to break their legs, and they would lose the ability to breathe. Uh, crucifixion very uh, violent, painful, prolonged, shameful way to die. Very much so. Uh, there is a fantastic article uh, from the Journal of the American Medical Association that I'll refer to a bit today. I'm going to post it on our website uh, in the Connect Sermon section with this video that we're recording now as well. And you can take a look at it yourself. It's a secular journal, nothing to do with Christianity, where they go through in detail a, a, uh, from a medical point of view, what would happen to a victim of crucifixion and what likely happened to uh, Jesus. It's quite something. And one of the things that they would do is break these legs to make sure the person would stop breathing because when you were crucified, uh, it was very hard to breathe anyway because of the position, the posture of the body and the way that the victim was either nailed or strapped to this cross, which was probably more like a T in Jesus's day, and it was probably a low-hanging cross, not a high-hanging cross, and um, uh, you, could, you could breathe in uh, uh, passively. It was a lot easier to breathe in, to inhale, than it was to exhale. 
you would have to intentionally exhale because the position of the body and so on, what it was doing to the lungs and, and all of that. And so they would break these legs and that the victim would die very, very quickly after that. They'd simply lose the ability to, to breathe. And so they go up to, to Jesus um, after they break the legs of both of these victims here in John chapter 19, verse 32. And they go up to Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, these are Roman executioners. They don't miss ever. They go up to Jesus and they come to the observation that he's already dead. And so they don't break his legs. Instead, verse 34, this is only in John's gospel. I want you to watch this carefully. Stay with me. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's only there, only there in the gospels. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. Seems to be remarkable to this observer. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may believe. These things have happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. uh, And uh, they will look on the one they have pierced. These are quotations from places in the Old Testament, Zechariah and the Psalms. The writer here sees something or whoever wrote this see something that is quite, quite spectacular and very unique and uh, establishes the death of Jesus with, I would say, 100% certainty. Now, just to give you a little more context here, if you look in Matthew's gospel, I'll flip over there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four guys, right? So if you flip over to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and you just look at his angle, <coughs> excuse me, on the crucifixion, you see that he mentions something that John doesn't mention, verse 46, about the ninth hour, and Jesus would have spent about six hours on the cross before he died. This is very fast. Uh, we see in the history books some crucifixion victims, it would take them days to die. It only took Jesus six hours, which suggests perhaps a more violent uh, flogging, uh, it suggests hypovolemic shock that he lost a lot of blood in that, <coughs> excuse me, in that flogging. But it took a very quick amount of, of time for him to die, relatively speaking. Uh, ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice in the Aramaic language, Ilai, Ilai, Lama Sabachthani, uh, which means, the writer translates it for us, Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they think he's calling Elijah the Old Testament prophet. Very interesting detail there recorded. The same thing is done for us in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15 and uh, verse 34. Uh, We see it there as well. Same quote uh, from the same place. The place where this is quoted from, Jesus is not just saying something. He's saying something that was written a thousand years before in what we call the 22nd Psalm. Now, when you read the 22nd Psalm, it is highly uh, suspicious and eye-opening because when we read the 22nd Psalm, we're looking at a rather gory uh, picture of something happening to someone that looks suspiciously 
like a crucifixion. And that thing is written a thousand years before by David. We know it's written a thousand years before. We've even found parts of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate uh, the life of Jesus, at least the life of Jesus on earth. So what's going on here? Jesus utters this verse from this psalm. Very difficult to talk when you're being crucified because of the difficulty in trying to exhale. This is why the statements of Jesus on the cross are very, very short. Um, he, he utters this statement. John doesn't mention it, but uh, Matthew and Mark mention it. When you read that crazy psalm, um, it, it is a vivid and gory description of what looks almost exactly like a crucifixion. And it is such an uncanny coincidence that Jesus would say the first verse of that psalm, and then you read the thing, you're, wow, that's mind-blowing. And there are a couple of verses from the psalm that are quoted with reference to the crucifixion uh, as if they knew that there were things in there that were alluded to, and this whole thing was a prophetic picture. Uh, a predictive picture. You say, well, I, I can't be expected to believe that. That's just a coincidence. Well, let me just take it a little bit further for you. When you talk about the cause of death of Jesus of Nazareth uh, via crucifixion, you have a number of things going on here. You have, uh, according to the medical books, hypovolemic shock. So he probably lost a lot of blood in that flogging. And that would cause the body to try and pump blood that it's lost and try and feed all the members of the body uh, enough blood to keep working. That's a huge, huge problem. Don't forget he had sweat like drops of blood, according to Luke. So the stress level that he's experiencing, no sleep, having to try and carry this cross, that's something else. Uh, the medical people say... Uh, as most crucified victims would die of exhaustion asphyxia, so they wouldn't be able to breathe up on that cross. Ultimately, that would uh, ensure their death. Um, and in Jesus' case, uh, the medical folks believe that there was something uh, right at the end there, and it wasn't a gradual uh, loss of his, of his life, but there was something dramatic that took place at the end there, one climactic moment uh, when he died. And there's, there's debate about what it was. Some say it was uh, acute heart failure, sort of like a heart attack, but others say that his heart ruptured and something caused a rupture of his heart uh, within his body. Now, back to this blood and this water deal. This is, a, this is an observation. Uh, you could say a scientific observation by whoever wrote that down, whoever claims to have been a witness to it. This is wild, this statement. This is wild. Uh, let me tell you why. There's been a lot of work done on this whole subject of what caused the death of Jesus, what, what was a crucifixion like, especially when people took it very seriously when they found the victim, uh, the bones of this victim in the 1960s, you know, with a nail through his ankles and so on. Um, when you, when you uh, uh, talk about these two theories, whether or not his heart failed like a heart attack or whether or not his heart ruptured, you look at that statement, little statement, 
in John's gospel with this blood and this water. Uh, there's really only one way that you get that. So people have studied and they've tried to duplicate the conditions of a crucifixion. It's not very easy to do, uh, but, you know, you use animals and whatever you can to try and figure out what would have been like. You try to put the spear in the side and so on. And uh, the this sequence of blood and water, not water and blood, but blood and water can only happen one way. And uh, the author of the study that I'm, that I'm referring to actually never saw it. He says it can happen, but it can only happen one way, and he never saw it. He saw uh, other reactions. He saw a little bit of blood. He saw a lot of blood. He saw water, and then some blood. He saw water, and then a lot of blood, but he never saw blood first and water second. It can only happen one way. It can happen with the standard thing of a crucifixion where you have exhaustion, asphyxia, but also, the heart has to rupture within the chest in order for that to happen. I know it's gory. I know it's gross. But that's the only way, according to that study, that you can see that. Uh, the other view that he had some type of, of heart trauma, like a heart attack, would be the reverse. So you would have water first and then blood, uh, according to that view. All right, And you have to read all the articles to get all this. I'm just making it really, really simple for you. Say, so what? Why is it, I mean, why is it so important? It's kind of gross. Uh, well, because, again, when you go back to that 22nd Psalm, you have, again, this vivid description of what appears to be a crucifixion. And then you jump down to verse 14, which nobody in the Gospels quotes. Uh, they quote a couple of other things, but they don't quote this. And look at this. Bizarre, uncanny coincidence, verse 14 of Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. I am poured out like water. Uh, there's a dehydration that happens to people when they're crucified, and all my bones are out of joint. That's what happens when you put someone up on a cross, when they nail these people's feet uh, they would have to turn them kind of sideways at times and put the put the nail through the ankle bones on the side to get it in there. I don't know how else to say it. And this would cause some dislocation of bones. And look at this, just dropped into verse 14. Nobody quotes it, but 20, 20th century medical science confirms it. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Wow, that's quite, that's some coincidence. You have, again, two different theories about the death of Jesus, both of them referring to something very violent happening to his heart, and you have this verse tucked in to this passage that they, the writers don't even quote. What's going on here? Why am I saying this to you? Because the death of Jesus was witnessed that day by that man who wrote that little passage in the Gospel of John. It's impossible for someone to have cooked that up. You've got a reaction there when the Roman puts his, his sword or his spear in Jesus' side that can be seen but only seen in a very highly specific way. It doesn't say water and blood. It says blood and water. I mean, the coincidences and the it's, it's uncanny. And so what you have, and again, according to the Journal of Medical, uh, American Medical Association, 1986, is they say, whichever way it went, 
what, whatever happened to the heart of Jesus that day, the physical heart of Jesus, he was dead. And there's no escaping it. There's no way around it. You've got an observation from someone from the first century confirmed by people in the 20th century. And even if you don't know anything about that, Romans never missed in an execution like that. Never. I mean, that would be, that would be about as uh, the, the same as saying that people miss in an execution today when the death penalty is meted out as it is in different places in the U.S. and around the world that people actually miss. They never miss. So we have in our midst here the reality that Jesus of Nazareth was dead on that day. He wasn't 90% dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't sort of look dead. And then they put him in the tomb and he recovered somehow. No, he was dead. He was dead. I've been to many funerals and done many funerals and looked at many, uh, many caskets with people in them. It's a curious feeling that happens to you when, when you do that. And many of you uh, on the other side of this camera, you've, you've been to funerals and you know what that's like. And you see that person's body who you've known maybe for years and years, depending on your relationship with the person. And you see that person's body and don't, don't you expect them to breathe when you look at them? I always do. I, I look at them and I, I somehow expect them to move or something. And you're looking and you're just waiting for something to happen. And it doesn't ever, because it's final, and, uh, and you close that casket, and the finality, and the 100% efficiency of death comes to your mind. It's so jarring. Can you imagine what it would have been like for those followers of Jesus after they saw him do all those things, and they see him and he's lifeless. He's, he's dead. Their hope, their savior, their king, their Messiah. There's no life coming from that body. He's not breathing. He's, as it were, in the casket. And he's gone. Can you imagine the sense of hopelessness that would be driven over and over again into their minds? Watching the ones who were at least there, the disciples fled, probably John who wrote, at least if we're to believe uh, the gospel of John, is there. Uh, and um, there's an exchange where, where Jesus kind of says, uh, you know, he, he wants John to take care of his mother, Mary. It's quite a moving exchange that happens there while Jesus is on the cross, sort of his last wishes. And he, he says, woman, behold your son, and here's your mother. So he's basically saying, I don't want her to be a, a widower, perhaps, even though she had other children, but I want you to take care of her, is kind of what's being said there. But just imagine, and if you've, again, if you've been to a funeral, especially of a loved one, wow, it is so jarring. I don't know if uh, some of you watched the funeral for Rebecca Love Harry uh, online. One of our own pastors uh, in Brassard did that funeral in his church building, and they had the camera on 
on the front of the of the, the the main room of the church with that casket open and you saw that young woman's lifeless body after she had been brutally uh, uh, murdered by uh, an ex-boyfriend and the finality and the uh, this the certainty of death it makes it can make you very angry it can make you so frustrated and this is what they felt. So this is a 100% thing. Now, that sounds so depressing. It sounds so gory. It sounds so dark. What does it mean for us that Jesus was dead? 100% dead, not 90%, 100% dead. You say, well, yeah, but... But Jesus went, in his, his, uh, he gave up his spirit and he went directly into the presence of the Father. Okay, but that's not, that's not fully revealed at that point. Um, the whole thing, you know, we stand on the other side of the reality of to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That is not a fully developed thought even at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. The disciples aren't saying, oh, well, it's okay. He's in the presence of the Lord and, you know, his body's going to be raised in three days anyway, so everything's going to be okay. That's not what they were thinking. That's what we think in the church you know 2000 years later that's not what they're thinking what they're thinking is it's over even though Jesus had predicted the thing would happen that's not what they, they didn't get that they understood that it was over hope was dead gone but what does it really mean for us today uh, so when Jesus died he dies completely for the person who is not a follower of Jesus Again, it's, a, it's an irritant, perhaps. It's an inescapable bother, perhaps. It's a reminder that, you know, even Jesus died, and it, it took him to. It's going to take us all. Maybe that's what the, the person who's very far from God, or maybe the atheist, thinks. Um, but what does it mean for a person who's come to faith in Christ, what does it mean from a perspective of your relationship with God that Jesus, an innocent man, died on that cross? Three things, and with this we'll close and we'll go into communion in just a few moments. Three things that the Bible teaches, some of them that Jesus taught. Number one, death to self. Death to self. Say, what's that mean, death to self? You die to yourself, Luke chapter 9 and verses 21 to 24, uh, this is Jesus' teaching. And he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. There it is. One of the many times that he predicts his death and resurrection. One wonders if they got it at all, because after he died, their behavior doesn't indicate that they got it at all. But listen to what he says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What? Take up his cross? When you take up a cross, it's over. They watched people take up crosses in the first century in Galilee and in Judea. They watched what happened when a person took up a cross. It's over. They're going to die. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You deny yourself and you take up your cross every day. 
Wow. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Whoa, that's pretty radical thought. He's got to be first and foremost. You are second. Your pride, what you want, all those things, you die to all that, and you put him first and his will and his desires first in your life if you're going to be a disciple. Boy. That is a high, high, radical, radical call. It's death to self. It's death to pride. Uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul would write this. Paul, the church hater, the Jesus hater, who became a church planter and a lover of Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase. In other words, you want to play a game with God. You're a Christ follower. And you just say, well, let's just keep on sinning because we just get more grace. You want to play a game with God? He says, no, by no means we died to sin. How long? Can, how can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, symbolized by water baptism? So you, you when you accept and believe and apply the meaning of the death of Jesus to your life, it means your relationship with sin is canceled. It's broken. You say, no, I don't want to live the same way that I used to live anymore. I want to live differently, not enslaved, living in my sin, whatever it is. The desire changes because the death of Jesus takes meaning in your life. Death to yourself, your pride, death to sin. That means that a, a person who comes to faith in Christ, they're going to start living differently. They're going to start changing the way that they live, be, not because they have to per se, but because they want to. There's a change that takes place. And finally, death to what Paul calls the principles of this world. You say, what is, I don't understand this thing. Dying, what do you mean I have to die to serve Jesus? Well, in that, in that spiritual sense, yes, you do. Yes, you do. So uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. Since you died with Christ. He didn't 90% die. He didn't swoon. He was 100% dead. When you come to Christ, the old you dies. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? And there he's speaking about legalism. Why are you behaving in a legalistic, religious, super religious fashion? When all that stuff, you, you died to that. That's the way the world operates. Try and jump up and down and make it to God and do all these religious things. That's old stuff. You died to all of that. You can't, you can't work your way to God. That's a, that's a principle of this world. Every religion will teach you jump up and down and you can make it to God. That's a principle of this world, he says. What are you doing living that, that way? You died to that. Uh, Galatians uh, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. Again, dying to the way that the world uh, operates. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. 
boast in the cross, this gory, brutal execution. May I boast in it. Why? Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. His relationship with the broader way that the world thinks and operates was severed when he came to faith in Christ. He looks at everything differently now, Paul. He looks at people differently. He looks at himself differently. He looks at God differently because it's all changed by the death of that one man. All changed. And we're not even talking about his resurrection from the dead yet. We're talking about his death on the cross. He dies as an innocent man, really. Convicted of blasphemy, yes, but even Pilate, who essentially pulls the trigger, as it were, allowing for his public uh, legal execution under Roman law, even Pilate tries to get him off, and he can't. He's caught between a rock and a hard place in a political sense, in a power sense, and even Pilate can't get him off, and he washes his hands of the thing. As if to say, it's I'm innocent of this. It's on. It's your responsibility. Uh, I will not be held guilty of this man's blood. So why does Jesus die? In the big grand sense, he dies for you on the other side of this camera. He dies so that you will live. He dies so that you will be changed. He dies so that your sins would be forgiven so that you would be able to engage in a relationship with God because the debt of your sin that you owe to God has been paid by Jesus, not by you, but by Jesus as your substitute. You say, well, God loves me. God loves me. Yes, he loves you. Uh, But he also has this holiness thing (laughs) and this holiness thing that God has is infinite it is immeasurable and therefore his holiness demands a justice for my sin and yours and what justice would that be well it would be in accordance with his immeasurable holiness wouldn't it so what does he demand everything your life everything so how do you pay that You can't. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why we call Friday good Friday, even though it's gory, even though it's final, even though it it, it seemed like hope was over. Hope was just beginning in the death of Christ. One of the things that he says on the cross, it is finished. The, the, the language in the Greek that's used there means more like paid in full. The debt has now been paid. It's actually an economic term. Your debt has been paid. Forty years later, no more temple. No more sacrifices for the sins of the people. Temple's gone. Romans destroy it. Romans destroy the city. How are you going to get forgiven of your sins? One time. By Jesus and his death on the cross. That's why it's so significant for us. That's why Friday is so good. 
And I'm not talking even about Sunday. We'll get to Sunday on Sunday. So what I'm going to do now is just lead you in uh, in communion. Hopefully you have your emblems ready. And uh, the band and the techs who are in the room, you can prepare yourselves while I find the scripture. There are some uh, juice cups right there on the table. I'm pointing to them. And juice that's there. There are emblems that are prepared for you guys. So faithful, individually wrapped there. So I want you to participate, every, everybody to participate today at home. Uh, those of you who are here in person, who are, who are helping out today. So significant. Uh, we live in this time of outrage. Uh, we have this, this young woman uh, brutally murdered. We have uh, violence across the nation against uh, uh, Asian people. That's, there's outrage about this, and as well, there should be. And, uh, you know, there's marches and all of these things, and, and uh, there's outrage. This is an age of outrage. But what are we angry at? We're angry at sin. We're angry at the moral evil that takes place in this world. We're angry because we see people victimized by it over and over and over again. And something rises up in us in, in a, a, a rage against this. And as well, that should be. But the ultimate solution to sin, the ultimate answer to moral evil is by God and what God has done for us on the cross. And uh, when we talk about his resurrection and we talk about justice, all of that, again, we'll leave for Sunday. But when you have Jesus in that moment on the cross, you see God's anger towards sin. It's an anger that is poured out on his own son as a substitute for us. Wow. Paul says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were reprobates, Christ died for us. While we were undeserving, completely undeserving, Christ died for us. That is the ultimate answer to the problem of evil and sin in the heart. And it has to take place on an individual basis, one at a time, as people say, I bow the knee to Jesus and I surrender to him and to what he has done for me. I cannot do life on my own. My sin has me bound. I am destined for an eternity without God. And I want to change that picture and accept what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Matthew chapter 26 at the Last Supper, I love the way that this is phrased, so direct. Uh, Jesus, you've got two things going on there. The betrayal by Judas Iscariot right at the same table where Jesus is explaining what we're about to do here. And he just identifies the betrayer. And in the same phrase almost, talks about this. Amazing. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat this, this that you know of to be the bread without yeast 
that you you eat every Passover to remember the speed that you had to leave Egypt and be set free from slavery. This also is now my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as you were set free from slavery hundreds of years before, you can be set free from the yeast of sin by following me and by believing in me. And so that when we take this, this, this wafer, this symbol, that's what we're doing. We're remembering Jesus went to the cross for me. And we're also acknowledging his body, his people around the world, both locally and worldwide. We are the body of Christ. We do both of those things. Uh, so would you partake with me of the bread today? And it continues in Matthew. Then he took the cup. And we saw this in our little teaching on Passover. This is probably the cup of redemption. There were four cups at least that were taken in a Passover. And he gives thanks for the cup. And he says to them, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. There's a new arrangement between us and God. It's a new covenant. And my blood is poured out for many. For what reason? No reason? No. For the forgiveness of sins. Your sins can be forgiven by God because of my blood. And just... just just a little bit later, you know, just a few short days later, that would come to pass on the cross. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. I'm never going to do this again, he's saying. From now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, there's going to be at the end of time a reunion between me and you. And we'll do this again at that time. Wow, what what a, a powerful, thought-provoking words those are. But his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it cost for us to be in right relationship with God. Would you partake with me of the juice? Amen. Thank God. Thank you, Lord. I'd like the rest of the band, if they go ahead and take their places, and they're going to play for us a little bit as we finish up Good Friday here. Uh, but I'd like to pray for you. Thank you so much for, for staying in with us, and I hope you learned. I hope you worship uh, Jesus in a greater way, understanding what he really did for you. I hope your faith grows and becomes more certain and your passion for him grows and you'd put him first in your life. God, I thank you for each person 
uh, each household. Help us, Lord, 2021, Good Friday, to put you first, to take up our cross and follow you. I pray for the one who is so bound by themselves, so bound by their own sin, that your power would just pour into their lives at this moment, and that the power of the cross would be real in each person's life and home and family. In Jesus' name, amen.
Sean and Simon and Viano for leading us today. And thank you so much for joining in with us. And I remind you, Sunday morning we'll be at Cineplex. You can uh, attend in person by uh, going to our website and registering there. We'll also stream it at 10.15. God bless you today. Enjoy the music. We'll let the band continue to play.
Jesus Christ Every sin was bought at the highest price Every fear was lost, every sin erased When Jesus took the cross, He took my place When Jesus took the cross, He took my place Jesus took the cross, 